Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten, a friendly reminder that we are your podcast that reviews films, talk reviews is a strong word, discusses, dialogues, editorializes about films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, then congratulations, you've found the right podcast. It's me. I'm Matt Monagle. I'm the problem. It's me. And I am joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Matt Donato, who is coming off a hell of a week, but is here bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Am I correct? No, I'm hungover. Okay. All right, so that's the energy we've got in the studio right now. I will be doing some heavy lifting, but that's okay, because, you know, Donato's got this. this is, you've done this a million times before. You can you can tap into those inner reservoirs. I've also done this podcast hungover many times before, <laughs> whether you knew it or not. So, so I think, you know, I think we'll be okay, to judging how the fast goes. Can I ask what the correlation is to how hungover you are versus how many times you fuck with like the soundboard on this? Is it like a one to one kind of thing? Um, it's not exclusive. Uh, sometimes it's just me being a little rascal. But uh, yeah, I get a little adventurous when I'm hungover. And I need to kind of keep my spirits high. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, listen, I got a gravelly voice coming off the Critics' Choice Awards. It's all for a privileged reason. It's all for a good reason. So there is no complaints on the Donato side. I'm, I'm bringing it 100 percent because I do it to myself. I love it. Well, if you are, if this is one of the first podcasts you're listening to this year, then welcome to another great year in horror. We already have titles like Sick and Skinamarink and M3Gen that are taking various stages of theatrical and streaming by storm right now. So um, for people that run a podcast like ours and run a website like ours, this is already shaping up to be a very exciting year. And as we do with every episode, we are joined by a really great guest who is going to take a deep dive into their movie of choosing. So Donato, if you can sober the fuck up enough to introduce our guest, let's do that now. I'm going to try to get through this, uh, but I, you know, I'm kind of excited for this one, especially because it is the direct track of someone who has written for us first, came to us as a brilliant writer and pitched some wonderful pieces. I'm sure we will discuss very briefly, but one such piece was on the movie we're talking about today and it was so good that it earned them the the immediate invite of like hello this movie fits why don't we talk about it uh so yeah without badgering on any more about it um i'd like to welcome our guest this week Cezine kohler a pop culture writer who you can now see on entertainment weekly and she also has a book coming out on keanu goddamn reeves mm-hmm. welcome welcome oh thank you so much i'm so excited to be here <laughs> y'all are funny <laughs> Yeah, we try. Yeah, this is this is the way we talk to each other when the cameras are off too. So it kind of like it's a very easy bleed over into into the podcast. Oh, it's fantastic! I love it. I feel like it's family already, so it's great. Hell yeah, (laughs) Sazine! I want to start by talking a little bit about you know we we like to start with our guests and get their early days of horror, but I want to pay you a compliment first before we get started because you are my favorite type of writer that I've come across since starting, since Donato and I started Certified Forgotten, which is that I was not familiar with your work, um, did not follow you on social media. You dropped a pitch into our inbox and the two of us were just like, ooh, good pitch. And we published that. And then we published another one and we started following you and engaging with you on social media. And now you are, you know, if people were like, oh, who are some horror writers I should follow? You're going to be one of the first people I mentioned. So you are to me kind of like, I don't want to say a success story, but one of my favorite things about running Certified Forgotten is when somebody comes into our inbox on a blind pitch and then becomes part of our expanded network of film critics that we really admire and like connecting with. Oh man, thank you so much. That's, oh, that is lovely. That's really just such a lovely compliment. And yeah, I just, what I love about what you guys do is that you, 
I have the craziest pitches. Like I, it's, I mean, as y'all have learned, I don't see things where other people see them. So, um, and there's not a lot of room for that, especially I find in the horror community, I don't really feel like, I feel like, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of challenging the narratives that are going on necessarily. And I just, that's what I love about you guys. Like that you would take, like, for example, my Blair Witch, my complete recontextualization of Blair Witch as a fey horror um, or folk horror, <clears throat> but more, you know, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's, it's not, maybe not a witch at all. Um, you know, stuff like that. Like where else would I send that? And, you know, that mm. story, that had been in my brain for like a year and it was starting to get to a point where it was like painful having it living in my head and not <laughs> sharing it with anyone. And then it was like, Hey, why haven't you already sent this to them? Like, just send it. So, you know, for me as well, like following you guys, because I mean, I was following you guys for a while and I was like, okay, so find what's get the list of the weirdest stuff and then, and then send it. And so I started, a pretty, I actually started pretty tame with the village piece and uh, it's been, it's been ramping up. So yeah, I appreciate you guys so much too. You do great work and, and you're great editors as well. So, I mean, just everything about working with y'all is awesome. Let's just keep complimenting each other this entire podcast this is just the podcast of us complimenting each other and going in circles but i mean i do want to comment very quickly on what you just said Cezine. um if you are looking to pitch certified forgotten i would highly suggest reading uh Cezine's pieces because as monogal said before you know like kind of what we do and what we want to do in this space is create an outlet that is absolutely pushing out content that no one else would kind of give a chance to right now. And Sazine, you are a hundred percent correct. It's like the main sites, you know, you're going for SEO, you're going for what's popular. You're going for what the people want to read. And of course our business model is to do the opposite because we're fucking great at business, obviously. Um, so, but, but legitimately though, like your pieces are, you know, we try to stay away a little bit from the popular titles. And, you know, we always tell people, like, if you're going to pitch us on Blair Witch, if you're going to pitch us on The Village, it's got to be something that is really going to be only for us. Like, you're giving us a pitch that goes, okay, this is a popular movie, but we're going to break our rule a little bit to get this out mm -hmm. there. And I really, if you're, if you're going to pitch us, again, I, I can't stress this enough, go read those pieces. And that's what you kind of got to bring. Donato, I'll always remember that you you actually messaged me because you you typically do the first edits on pieces. And I, I was like, Oh, how did the first pass of the Sazine's Blair Witch piece? And you were like, I think I can never approach this movie again the same way. Like you literally were like, I think this changed how I view this movie forever. And I was like, Oh fuck, that's cool. Yeah. And you know, and actually like, so from that piece, I'm actually turning that piece into a full book. So I have been going through and I've been recontextualizing a lot of movies that people would not necessarily consider fey or folk horror. And I'm, I'm recontextualizing them. So like, Films like Revenge and Mad Max and like, I mean, I have like a whole, oh my gosh, you, you should see the the file with all of the titles and, and every, oh my God, it's so cool. So that's, that should be my next project. Um, so I've got Keanu book is going on right now. And then there's Bill and Ted University. So that's also in progress. So, so the Fey Horror recontextualization should be probably in the next couple of years. I'll start, I'll get that out there. But, um, but yeah, but it was really cool. Just like, you know, that a piece as well that I wrote for you guys is like turned into this huge project. And like, really, that book is going to blow people's minds, too, because a lot of the titles that I'm looking at in there, I mean, people, I didn't even get any threats or harassment or anything after the Blair Witch article, which I was kind of like, uh oh, like, this is yeah. really taking off. People are going to start getting angry with me. But I think people were, they're almost so shocked that they were like, okay, first off, how does she know about all this? And that's a little scary. Like maybe that's scary by itself. But then second, like the more you try to argue against my theory, the more it makes sense. 
<laughs> like really. So you could just keep digging, but you're you're just gonna dig yourself more further and further into fairyland. And um, which I just thought that was really, really, really cool. And so yeah, so that was like one of the first popular pieces I've written. I mean, I think maybe even in my career that didn't result in any kind of like harassment campaign mm -hmm. or anything. So like it's also special to my heart just for that reason, because man, it's really annoying being a woman on the internet sometimes, like <clears throat> actually most of the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> really, like, why? It's a movie. Like, do you need to threaten someone with, like, bodily harm because you don't agree with them? Like, I, there has been so much of that nonsense. So it's just been really nice, like, that my pieces have been so contentious in theory with you guys, but I haven't had any of that, like, violent pushback that I have with, like, a lot of other things. So, I mean, that's just been really, really cool, too. I, I feel like I feel like Certified Forgotten has its own little protective sphere around it somehow. And, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just like the straight up weirdness of it. And that's kind of like the buffer that somehow keeps all of the like the wickedness from coming through into the DMs and into the um, messages. But like, yeah, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> we don't we don't deal a lot in sacred cows. I mean, like intentionally, it's certified forgotten. So, you know, you we've are blessed to have a, a ton of really good pitches in our inbox right now. We're kind of going through a little bit and seeing what's going to be on the docket for February and March. Um, but a lot of the things that would people get, I think people would get really upset about are going to be the pitches that unfortunately Donato and I are going to pass on. And it's the weird shit that nobody's seen. You know, I, I think don't go in the woods is a good example of that. Nobody's going to roll into, you know, your mentions being like, I have strong opinions on don't go in the woods. And we'll talk about the movie when we talk about the movie. But I think we, one of the the beautiful things about this format is, you know, if we're lucky, it does give writers an opportunity to not only pursue what they want, but do so where they, they're kind of, you can't pretend that they're not an expert, right? You can pretend in a lot of different venues, especially with women, especially with people of color. They're like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, let me explain to you what this movie is. But when you're dealing with a movie that came out on, you know, Tubi in 2017 and has, you know, 400 views or something, and somebody's writing a thousand words on that, it's really hard for even the worst parts of the internet to go onto Twitter and be like, actually, let me explain what this movie's about for you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I just, I really, I, I just, I love the community that you've built. And every, every time that an article comes out, I'm always just like, oh man, this is just so good. And it's always so different. Like just all of the writers you have are, so, man, the voices are so strong, so unique. And it's just such a pleasure. It's just always. And even if I'm not going to watch the movie, I love to read the pieces anyway, because they're just so good. It's the thought processes mm -hmm. are so good. And you're like, man, man, just like a group of weirdos. And we're, I just, oh, I love it. It's just like, it's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm just so happy that you guys did, you know, you've done this because really it, like, I just feel like there, we need to have more little things like this where not, not that this is little, but like, you know, oh, it's little, it's little, <laughs> it's little, but I don't know. I, I feel like the writing that that comes out is so big that it, it's hard for me to kind of marginalize you guys in that way. And I feel like because the voices are so strong um, and you really find these like really just such fascinating takes on things that like, I just wish there was more of that, you know, like I hope that you guys grow and, you know, double, triple, quadruple so that you can, you know, feature more of the pitches that you get in your inbox, because like, seriously, y'all definitely have an eye and the stuff that ends up on the site is just, it's just so good. I mean, it's really, it's my favorite site. So yeah. So, I mean, again, it's just such an honor to be on here because I'm like, oh man, these are my favorite. Like, <laughs> and then I get to be on the podcast. Like, yeah, this is winning for sure. 
the favorite stuff that like, you know, you're talking about and that we like to do, I'm trying to think recently, you know, uh, we commissioned like a poet to write about like the baby. We commissioned like a librarian who's like, I've never written about horror before, but I have this idea percolating. Can I try it here? And we're like, hell yeah. Because like, you, it, like these people who come from not the horror world or whatever you want to call it, not horror Twitter, not horror this or that. Um, and they're just appreciators of horror. And like, it, I, I like the fact that we can kind of, shine a light on the fact that you don't have to be in these circles just to write these brilliant things or talk about or just show an appreciation of horror. So that's what we're going to keep striving to do. I, I We can, and listen, we probably would l- just talk about how much we all love this thing that we work on together. Um, but I don't want to go too much farther without Sazine talking a little bit about your history as a writer too. Um, you know, I know that you have been writing for a long time. I've, I've, I've dug into your bio now. You know, we've we've had a chance to kind of see the work that you've done and get familiar with with the different places that you've written before. But for somebody who might be listening to this podcast, if you're Vince D'Onofrio and you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you're wondering, like, who is this person that keeps bringing my movie to the forefront? Talk a little bit about, you know, the beginning of your horror journey. You know, did you start thinking about or writing about or enjoying horror? Was it something you grew up with? Was it something you started in, in school? Where did that kind of the the road meet the rubber when it comes to, to your journey as a horror fan and writer? Oh, wow. So, um, oh yeah. So I've been a horror fan since I was a little kid. Um, I saw <laughs> uh, American Werewolf in London when I was probably around four um, or five maybe. And uh, it's definitely like, <laughs> I have a long memory. Like I, I remember my childhood pretty well. And uh it's uh, it's that moment is burned in my brain, and um, to this day, like werewolves are my favorite monsters. Um, so yeah, so it started really early, and um, I think there's a lot that goes with it. So I mean, I was writing from a very young age too, and I was always coming up with weird little horror stories and little horror poems, and but like not just horror. I was also writing all, I was writing all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've been writing since I was really small, and um, and yeah, horror. I think you know, also had a, had a really difficult upbringing and, you know, a lot of violence and a lot of, um, you know, moving around a lot because of my mom's job. And so there was just, a, there was a lot of instability and insecurity in my life um, on multiple levels. And I always found that horror was very comforting. Um, and so horror was kind of, it, it just sort of became my safe place where first off it was like, oh, okay, so my family is not the only one that's fucked up. Like, Man, there's like a bunch of, you know, like, oh, my God, when I first read Stephen King, I was like, oh, thank God for this, you know, and Flowers in the Attic. I was like, oh, my God, thank God, because like I thought that I was alone in this like circle of violence and awful fucked upness, you know. And so, yeah, so those narratives for me really became uh, sources of comfort. Um and then, of course, it just kind of feels inevitable that I would eventually write a horror novel, which basically my my. um my college thesis is called American Monsters, and uh, it was sort of an ethnographic, it was an imaginary ethnography of the Southern California rave scene um, through the lens of the exploitation of women and girls. And, um, and it's, you know, this was before this, so this was in uh, 2000, um, and it, I finished it in 2001. And so this was before like all the superhero craze. So like all of the super, all of the women in the book are, they all have these trauma-based superpowers. And um, so it was like at a time when I wrote it, it wasn't like a like like now I feel like everyone is ev- everything is trauma based superpowers. And it's like yeah. my book feels kind of it makes me feel a little bit sad because like when I when it when I came out with it, everyone was like, what the fuck have you done, girl? Like this is twisted. Like 
this is the only book that has no love in it. Like, how do you, how does someone accomplish that? And I was just like, uh, well, if you knew even a little bit about my life, <laughs> like it makes perfect sense actually. So, um, so, you know, so at the time it was like, that felt like a very transgressive thing to be doing is like, oh, this woman writing these like crazy superhero women and these zombie feminists and like, um, you know, and, uh, yeah. And so then, so that, so I wrote that, that was my, my, my thesis, my senior thesis. And, um, and then years later, I decided to see if I could publish it. So I just went self-publishing route to, to begin with. Um, and at that point, I kind of had already been known as a writer, but um, not necessarily fiction. So I had been working at the UN um, on a lot of, uh, as a freelance reporter, covering indigenous issues. So for all these different indigenous delegates coming from all over the world uh, to advocate for uh, treaty rights, territory rights, hum basic human rights um, at the UN. I was covering all these meetings and um, my reports were kind of getting sent out to these huge listservs with tens of thousands of people reading them around the world. And um, so a lot of my work, you know, from when I wrote American Monsters to when I published it was a lot more around human rights issues, indigenous issues, um, race, racism, feminism, um, PTSD, because that, another thing that kind of shaped American Monsters was the the murder of my best friend Wendy, um, and I witnessed I witnessed it, and I mean it was just honestly one of the most horrible things. And I had testified against the murderers, and that was a huge, you know, that that whole thing was just such a oh man, such a life shaping uh, trauma, um, and it definitely shaped American Monsters a lot too. So. I was writing a lot about PTSD and, you know, healing methods and, you know, just kind of my journey, just trying to get better. Um, and so then, yeah, so then I self-published American Monsters somewhere around 2009, I think. And it was, and really I self-published because at the time, again, no one was doing it. And so I was kind of like, I thought, you know what, this is the weirdest book. Nobody's going to pick it up. Like, and I, and I knew that if I sent it to a publisher and if they were interested, they'd be like, we need you to rewrite the whole thing into like a, a more of a traditional narrative. And at the time I was very attached to the book and I was attached to my trauma. Um, not to sound like Jamie Lee Curtis, like saying trauma, trauma over and over again. But like, I really was very, I was, well, yeah, I was trauma bonded to that book. And so I was like, I'm not publishing it any other way than how I have it. This is, you know, what pain looks like when it comes out on a page. Like that's, this is how it's going to be. And, um, and you know, it didn't do badly. Like, I mean, I actually had a lot of people, they, people bought it and people read it and, and as women in particular really, really engaged with it very deeply. And, uh, then a few years later, um, an indie publisher was like, Hey, we want to pick this, we want to pick up your book and we want to illustrate it. And so, um, so then in 2011, I got an artist, an amazing watercolor artist named Rose Denise, who, um, she lives in Turkey with her family, um, but she's American. And um, she did these incredible watercolor portraits and scenes from the book. And um, and so, yeah, so that version that came out was, oh, it's so pretty. It's really, really pretty. So I was really proud of that. And um, and then, oh, man, and then kind of the shit hit the fan when it came to a lot of things. Because um, uh, at the time when American Monsters, when my whole journey with American Monsters getting published, all took place in Prague. And... Um, kind of by, so what year was that? So 2011, we found, my husband and I found out that our jobs had basically been made redundant at the school we worked at. And so we had kind of been planning to leave Prague already and didn't know quite what was going to happen. 
And we had a terrible little mistake, kind of like a four-month layover in Germany that did not work out. And then by December of 2011, we were back in the U.S. And all of a sudden, you know, I'd never wanted to come back to the U.S. Like Florida is uh, not my home. I, I would rather have gone back to California, honestly. Like if I was going to live anywhere in the U.S., I'd rather go back there. But my husband's family was from here. We didn't really have much of a choice of like, you know, we, we didn't have any money. We, we literally had 15 euros. Like I still have the 15 euros. That was like the last cash that we had. <laughs> like that was all we had left. And um, yeah, so, we, you know, we had to live with his parents for a while. And like while I was there, it was I couldn't get a job. I couldn't find I've always had I've always had my writing, but I've always had a job as well. And I couldn't find a job outside the house. Like it just, you know, transportation was either a, a block or there was just nothing that was available that made it worthwhile to like take a taxi because before Uber. So, um, so I was like, okay, well, I'm here now and I've been working on like the sequel to American Monsters. Like, why don't I go back to that? And so I actually took the, like the first nine months that I was back in the States. Um, I was doing my, I, I also do editing work with, with a lot of European universities. So that was my day job. And then I decided to pick up, you know, the sequel to American Monsters. And I decided instead of superheroes this time, I would frame it as like, like a supernatural noir and um, like an urban, like urban fantasy kind of thing. And so it's yeah. these two cops. Um, these two cops are the main. And now I'm like, oh, why did I make them cops? Because like, damn it, like propaganda, you know, it's like the insidiousness of the police states. Like this is me 10 years ago, not knowing any better. Um, hindsight is always, you know, <laughs> hindsight's definitely a thing. <laughs> it absolutely, absolutely. Especially when it comes to social justice issues. Like, you know, I had not been in America. Like I had not lived here. So my experience with police, with like state violence, with all of that stuff, like, I mean, I, of course, was very aware of it, but I was like, the way that I wanted to frame the story, it just, it was like all those cop shows. And I was watching a lot of cop shows, you know, that was just, there's so many of them. And SVU was on TV all the time. And um, yeah, so, so yeah, so the second novel came out. Um, so I self-published that one as well. And I kind of had the mind to like start my own publishing house, but like without, you know, if you don't have access to like capital you, it's really difficult to do anything so that kind of that that didn't reach as far as I would have liked and I feel like in a lot of ways it's better than the first one just because it's like more measured and the writing is a lot calmer and there's just something about that the way that that book came out that I really loved and I do have a, a there's a third one in fact I was going to write a whole like series of these books um so then there, the third one was going to be um all set in Prague actually so the first two are set in LA and then the third one is going to be set in Prague and that one's half finished. But then, um, you know, but then it kind of got to a point where I needed work and we were, you know, living in a place where I just, I couldn't find work outside the house. So I had to start like looking at like my resources from the computer. And that was actually, that ended up being how I started actually writing for a living. Um, so it really wasn't my choice for this to be like a full time, like to, I don't recommend it. Like for anyone who's listening, who wants to be a writer, don't do this full time. Seriously, have something else, have another, you know, have another source of income, have something outside of the house, preferably that you're doing that has nothing to do with anything you're interested in writing about, because your brain, it just, it needs that. It needs the difference. And you need to protect your creative space, like the creative areas in your brain. Like you, you can't protect those if you're just, all you're doing is staring at a computer and, and like, I need to write another thing. I have to write another thing. I have to like, like just churning it out, churning it out. Like that's not good for creativity. Um, but unfortunately that's kind of what I had to do. And, um, and Hey, 
don't get me wrong. Like I have some amazing bylines, like, you know, I'm working with entertainment weekly at the moment. You know, I've written for teen Vogue. I've written for Huffington post. Like I used to be a regular horror contributor for bitch magazine before they folded. Um, you know, I've worked with amazing editors, amazing people, but like, it's been hard. And now I have carpal tunnel, you know, and, and that, because that's what will happen. <laughs> like, that's the other thing that'll happen is if all you're doing is writing full time, you know, you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna end up having health issues, you're gonna have brain issues, like, it's just, yeah, so, I mean, for, for anyone who's like, I want to be a full-time writer, please don't, just stop that, <laughs> like, just stop that, very, very few professional writers can actually make a living, I can't, I'm not even making a living at the moment, like, if my husband wasn't working full-time, and, like, you know, when we had that support, um, and I had that support, I wouldn't be able to do this, like, it's, you know, it's really, it's not, um, What's the word? It's uh, it's not reasonable, really, to to try to think that this would be a, a, something that you should do full time. I mean, unless you're a nepotism Barbie, um, they can do anything they want because they've got money. So, like, so I mean, if you're a nepotism Barbie watching this, then ah, uh, man, donate your money to writers. <laughs> That's what I would say to the. <laughs> so that we can like do stuff that we want because yeah, man, like a universal income. How much? Oh, what that would do for writers would be incredible. I mean, yeah, you're preaching to the uh, the choir of me and Monagle always have had our day jobs and we write in the creative space. And like, I, I, there are, I think the problem is an industry problem at this point, as you said, because reasonable is the word, you know, you're like, how do I describe this? It's not reasonable. Um, and I think there are so few sites that can actually pay people what they deserve um, and actually pay them livable wages because I've had to forego multiple like, editors that I adore, you know, like, I, I love the people who've come to me and have been like, Hey, what would it take to get you writing full time for us? And, you know, the answer is always, do you know how much I make in my day job? Because here it is. <laughs> and that very much closes the door on those conversations. And it's just where we are, you know, like, it, it's a creative industry. And I think business minded people look at that and say, Oh, cool, it's a creative industry. So I can get away with paying people less because they just want to do it because they're creatives and all that stuff. So there's a lot that has to change there. I think we do absolutely have to like start looking at the sites that do actually value their employees and do actually pay them what they deserve and more have to do that. But the problem is most don't have to. Yeah. And then this other thing is that there's so many people who are just so excited to get a byline that they'll, you know, for 50 bucks, write something, 6,000 words. I, I saw someplace that was, that was paying like, for 4,000 words, they were paying $50, 4,000 words. I'm like, what? I, oh, pff, what, uh, in what scenario is that okay? Like, how? And this is a very popular, and I don't want to like name and shape, but it's a very popular site. And I was like, I've stopped clicking on them, honestly, because I'm like, nope, that is exploitation. That is full creative exploitation. Like, how can you do that to people? Because here's the other thing for writers. Like, you know, like I don't know how many, have you guys seen Lisey's story or read the book? I'm like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I've read it. Okay. So, oh, so in Lisey's story, so it's this, um, oh, it's my favorite Stephen King book. And then the adaptation that they made of it is so beautiful. Oh my God. It's incredible. So there's this writer um, named Scott and he's got this place that he goes and it's this these kind of magical healing waters and that's where he gets his ideas from. And that's where he, you know, whenever he's having troubles, like he's, he's got a lot of PTSD issues as well. And, and um, he goes there and that's like his space where he centers. And then when he comes back, he, he's got the most beautiful things to write. Like 
writers, we all have that too. Like every single writer, any creative person has that well of creativity. But the thing is that if that well, like if you use it up without all the things that fill it back up again, like at a certain point, that's when burnout happens. And you know what? It is really hard to fill that well when it goes dry. Like it is really hard. And I've been there. I've, I've literally, I've been in that situation with like having, you know, I, cause I had some, a bunch of content writing jobs that I needed to do for the money. And, you know, when you're turning out like four, 3000 word articles um, a week and it's like, okay, well, this is great. It's fun writing about Dexter and American Horror Story and stuff, but like, this isn't the only thing that I want to write about. And I would really notice in my brain, like that I wasn't able to think about other things. I wasn't able to think about short stories. I wasn't able to think about, you know, even just quietly working on my third novel. Like I just couldn't because the, the well had run dry. Like I tapped it out and it was really a scary few months as I tried to have to like reconfigure, like how, where is this creative, where is this energy going to come from? And, um, Honestly, it took getting injured. <laughs> that's what that's really what it took is for my hand injuries to come up. And I was forced I, I couldn't work for six for six months. And all I could do was like sit and I had just sit in pain and waiting and just like waiting for just the inflammation in my hands to go down, getting steroids, so many steroid shots, physiotherapy, like, I mean, the whole thing. And um, it was kind of during that convalescence time, like that's when the, the well my Blair Witch article like that's where that came from was like me sitting there like watching each of the Blair Witch movies like kind of on repeat for a while and I was like wait a minute I I think I just noticed something Steve like you know because if you watch something enough times you'll start to see really weird shit so like so there was that and like uh, my Keanu book so much to do about Keanu um that book also came from that convalescence time and I literally with two fingers on my phone on the notes app making my outline and like tears streaming down my face because my hands hurt so much but I was just like I have to write something and I think this is a really good idea like <laughs> you know um and same with the Bill and Ted book like that all that stuff came because I was so burned out and my body had shut down you know my hands had shut down I couldn't create I couldn't I'm a hand talker and so like if you if my hands are in braces I will I will start studying stuttering and stuff because like I need it comes out of my hands and like my writing comes out of my hands too it doesn't come out of my mouth and so I, I just needed that time, I guess, to like to rest. But it sucked because I like all my savings were gone after that. Right. Um, because it's America. So um, so I, I just try to focus these days. I'm just trying to focus like, all right, let's just focus on the positive that came out of it, because if it hadn't been for those six months of convalescence, then I wouldn't be doing all the cool, amazing things I'm doing now. And I also wouldn't be getting paid more <laughs> for writing less words. So, you know, so that's the other thing was like I'm finally at a point where. Um, you know, after all of this, after everything, you know, dabbling in so many different aspects of the publishing industry and working with so many different people where I'm just finally at a point in my career where I'm like, okay, well, I don't take less than like 16 cents a word, like, or that's my minimum now. It's like, and a lot of the places I'm writing for now pay much more than that. So I just feel like, but like the basic for most people is like a cent if you're lucky, but most of the time it's not even that it's like less than pennies. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's just it's been a very um, it's been a very strange and wild kind of journey through publishing. And, you know, if I wasn't still in Florida, I definitely would have a day job. Like, I mean, the places that I would like to live are places that are just much more community based, whereas Florida is just where I am. This is Trump land, you know, and it's mm. it's very like, I don't know, it's getting worse every day. And every time I go out, I feel unsafe. It just it feels unsafe to be a person of color and 
um, someone who just visibly looks different. I, oh my God, the looks I get from people all the time is awful. So, you know, it's just, yeah, with everything that's going on, like, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to at some point having money in the bank again and being able to move someplace where like I will work outside the house. And like, that's like my dream right now. So like people are dreaming about being a full-time writer and I'm a full-time writer who's dreaming about the day that I'll have a part-time job working with kids or like in a tattoo parlor or an art gallery. I don't care. Like someplace else outside (laughs) where I see people every day. Um, Like that's my dream now. Is that weird? Like, no, no, that makes complete sense. And, you know, I, I, oh man, we could talk about, we could talk about the writer thing and the career thing for, for another 30 minutes if we wanted to, but you kind of hit on, I think a really interesting and natural segue into talking about the film, which is the pressures of creativity, the tortures of creativity and the things that you force yourself to do in order to put yourself into a creative mindset. So I'm going to say, let's take this natural transition. Let's take a quick break and then let's come back and talk about don't go in the woods. So we'll be back in just a second. Congratulations. Not only have you made it halfway through this latest episode of Certified Forgotten, but we have a fresh new batch of bumpers provided by our patrons that I'm going to read out loud right now. First up, we have a bumper from Amanda, and Amanda says, well, Amanda wants you to feel yourself up. Early detection of breast cancer can be the difference between a 99% survival rate and a 27% survival rate. Monthly self-exams are a quick way to prioritize your health. For more info, go to knowyourlemons.org or... Follow Amanda at Amanda H-A-G-L-E-Y on Instagram for reminders. Next up, we have a movie recommendation from Mr. James Shapiro, who says, very plainly, can't wait for everyone to see Talk To Me. It's so good. Yes, I cannot wait to see Talk To Me either, Mr. Shapiro. Save me a seat at South by Southwest. All right, I don't have monocle here, so this was short and sweet. Let's get back to the episode. Okay, welcome back. So this week on Certified Forgotten, we're going to talk about a 2010 horror film conceived and directed by Vincent D'Onofrio. The name of the film is Don't Go in the Woods. And here is a basic plot description that isn't really going to do uh, this horror musical any justice, but we got to describe the plot anyway. So here we go. When the members of a Brooklyn band get the opportunity to produce a demo tape, their lead singer and songwriter convinces them to head deep into the woods to write new music. But their newfound focus dissolves when the band is joined by a group of their fans, several of whom have designs on the band members themselves. When a mysterious man starts killing off the groupies, they declare themselves groupies, so it's okay to use that word, the band may soon learn that their first album is also their last. With songs by Sam Bisbee, sorry, Sam Bisbee, and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio taking a Law & Order break 
to make the slasher of his dreams. Don't go in the woods was took 12 days to shoot cost about a hundred thousand dollars features a completely non-professional cast of actors and is without a doubt, one of the most unique and strange horror films that I have ever seen. So I want to start tangentially actually, because this is a question that was bothering me the entire time that I was watching the film. So I'm going to start for both of you in a different place, which is we're coming up. We're about, you know, 10, 15 years out from 2010. Now the 2000s are starting to become a window, a look back in nostalgia. We're a few years away from fashion and music to kind of cycle back through. What is the sound of the 2000s to you? Because I was listening to the songs in the soundtrack and I was like, this sounds very 2000s. And then I was trying to figure out what that meant to me. So I'm curious, what, what makes this a time capsule musically? What is the, What are the artists that this evoked for you? What are the people that you thought of when you were listening to these bands? Yeah, you know, that's because I think I mentioned that in my piece as well, that there's there's definitely a time capsule feel about it. And I, I just feel like it's that like, really that that emotional indie rock scene with like the angst on display but like very earnest you know I feel at this point I feel like it's shifted into there's a kind of a cynicism now um but I feel like back in 2010 there was just this I don't know I guess you would call them hipsters I guess would they have called them hipsters back then I I wasn't in America when that came out so I'm not sure what the lingo was but I think hipsters were born from this era. I think like this is kind of like the era that launched the the concept of the hipster in pop culture. Yeah. Right. And, but the hipster is like, is the hipster is the cynical one. The hipster is like doing things to be ironic. They're like, Oh, it's like, I, that whole vibe does not feel like the vibe of don't go in the woods to me. Like to me, it feels like that's the moment that it shifted. And I feel like that's also really interesting in the film because how the film ends with this guy, like murdering everyone and stealing all the music, like, that's the, the intro of the hipster. Like he becomes the like the the proto hipster like um, archetype right there. Like in in that transition from being a band in a band member to the one who wants to be like the solo artist and the the star, right? Like I feel like I feel like a lot of the music and don't go in the woods is like it's just it's that music that you'll hear at the cafe down the street. Like it's never gonna be on the radio but you're going to hear and you're going to love it. Like if that's your favorite band and you're like, oh my gosh, you've got to play that one. Like, and, and and if they know you, they know which one your song is. And like every time that you hear it, it's like, there's something lovely about that. And there were just like, I mean, I, I know for me, like even though I wasn't in, in the States, like for the 2000s, I used to go to live music, like, like indie local musicians all the time. I mean, that was just like, I mean, that's always been one of my favorite things to do, but living in Europe where you can just like walk to a, the little concert and or there's concerts in the park or like, and everything is in walking distance or there's public transport. Like just the amount of like just really talented musicians that I had opportunity to just spend time with and be fans with and then turn into friends. Like that's the vibe I feel like, I think that's one of the reasons I love the movie so much is, and, you know, and bringing all the, the fans into it, all the groupies. Um, I don't know. It just, to me, it is nostalgia. It is nostalgia for me for the, you know, the 2000s. And the the switch that happens at the end is like it just at the time you didn't realize it, but like it it kind of foreshadowed a lot of how the you know the indie rock scene changed. Um, and I don't think that you can make a movie like that now. Like I feel like the earnestness it would just well I mean I feel like it was lost on people back then. <laughs> I think it's kind of been lost on yeah I mean yeah because we're reviewing it and like that less than ten reviews which is just makes me makes me so sad. But I feel like maybe by the time the movie came out, people's minds and hearts had already moved into that hipster mind frame. And mm. 
So the movie didn't really, it didn't resonate. And when I saw it, I was really missing that, all of that vibe that I used to have just, oh, just like drown myself in and when I was in Europe. And, um, and I think maybe that's why I just, oh, I just love the music so much. Like it, my husband even knows the lyrics to all the songs because that's how much I've watched it. Like it's, it's really funny. Like every once in a while I'll hear him humming and I'm like, oh my God, he's literally singing the hurricane song from Don't Go Into Woods right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, you know, trying to, again, put it, you know, a sound on it, I guess, monocle to answer your question and trying to like, you know, contextualize that time in, in music, it, it does feel incredibly indie. It does feel like you are with your friends in, around a campfire, just kind of making music like yeah. that. And it like, weirdly enough, I know this isn't really from the t- 2000s era, but it made me think of movies like um, Uncle Peckerhead and uh, Dinner in America, because those were two bu- uh, punk based horror films. And like, they do the, they do the songs very well. And they're very, uh, right. Cezine, as you said, like very emotional. These felt like the songs aren't just about like, you know, let's just go be punks and do blah, 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 blah. Like the generic stuff. Like, no, they're, they're heartfelt punk songs. And what this, what the music here does very well. And another strange comparison point, but I will bring it up because Glee was very popular at the time when this came out. It very much felt like a punk version of Glee in the sense that, you know, you get the traditional, you get the stereotypes, you get all that stuff. But then all of a sudden they kind of just go a different way and they kind of analyze like yeah. what's behind all of that. And they analyze all the punk guys who were these, you know, macho bros and talking about drinking and fucking and all that stuff. But then when it's their turn to sing their song, it is this thing that is, you know, the guy with the broken heart or, you know, the blind guy who just, you know, is singing about death and like he doesn't care that he doesn't see anything. And that to me is the stuff that it feels very 2000s in that it's open and honest and raw. And, uh, you know, even though like in the 2000s for me, I was listening to like saliva and POD and like new metal like that, yeah. like that was the, the sound of the 2000s for me was like Hellraiser, Hellworld, all these like, you know, corn wannabes and stuff like that. So that was my 2000s soundscape. <laughs> wow. Gosh, that's wild. And that's and honestly, that's why I wish that there were really more horror musicals because I feel like just the intersection with the music and the horror, like, because when I was reading, um, you know, uh, D'Onofrio didn't do many interviews about it, but one that he did, he talked about how um, the, the challenge that he felt was with this, that songs are emotional release. So then how do you have them singing and then have the violence be the like the emotional release? Right. Like, how do you cut that in a way? And I feel like the way that each song is interrupted, like he just did that so perfectly. And it's just like every song is unfinished. Right. Like we don't. And literally those songs are not finished. Like they, that's, that's all that exists of them. There's no soundtrack for this movie. There's no score. Um, there's some people who have made like fan cuts on YouTube with all the songs together. Um, but even then the songs are not complete because we don't have a complete recording. I don't know if Bisbee even did a complete recording of them. Like, I, oh, I wish he would. Um, and then Sam Bisbee himself. So some of the songs are covers. So I've gone through all of his albums trying to find all the songs. And um, they're very different. That he he's got a very different style than anyone who's in the movie, uh, which is also pretty cool. Um, but there's only like five, like what? No, four. There's only like four songs that are actually from the movie that are on any of his albums. So everything else was just written for the film. And yeah, and there's like something. I feel like there's something about that, like when it's un, that those unfinished moments that also just makes it so, such a poignant film for me because all these kids like. You know, like they didn't even want to be famous. Just Nick is the only one who wants to be famous. Everyone else just wants to play music, get laid, have fun. Like 
you know, sing their hearts out. And that's more than enough for them. Right. Like it's really it's more than enough. And then there's Nick over here, like Mr. Frodo lookalike, who's like, I, you know, I want, I want to do this. I'm, I'm the mountain on my own. Like, oh, I'm taking all your shit with me. It's like, what the hell, dude? Like, what's that man's problem? <laughs> you know, I said, I'm like, he's a character. I realize, but like, I'll sit there and I'll be like, this motherfucker over here. Like, that's, but, yeah. but at the same time, I feel like his sequel, he'll be in jail. Like he's not getting away with that. He's not. There's no way. So he'll get his he'll get his album and he'll it'll hit platinum or whatever. And maybe it'll get more famous after he's in prison. But like he's going to jail. He's he's not gonna get away with that. Oh, I want to I want a sequel so badly. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> it is it is interesting how much this film, you know, talking about the the time capsule piece. It's it, this is maybe the most horror film that I, the the most I've ever seen a horror film belong to a specific era in which it was released. And by that, I mean, like talking about the music, the vibe that I got while listening to this was like pure scrub soundtrack all the way. Right. Like every single song on the soundtrack, if it was like, you know, I was thinking like Rhett Miller in the old 97s pretty much the whole time. If, if all of these were like credit songs on a scrub soundtrack, I'd be like, feels totally of a piece, feels totally appropriate. But I was I was trying to remember. And so I, I ended up looking it up. Um, when Ty West and the Mumblegore movement started because uh, House of the Devils 2009, The Innkeepers is 2011. You know, Ty West was sort of the um, the horror counterpart to a lot of what was happening in Austin with like the Mumblecore movement. And it, it just feels like a film that, that it, you to say that it couldn't get made today makes it sound like there were some sort of, you know, it, well, it couldn't get made today because it's a cast of non-professional actors and it's a horror musical and like, you know, who makes those? But it also feel, it also feels like it was tapping into a very specific energy that only like within the film industry was only active for a, a few year window here, right? Where like people were making movies like this and they were doing it with like non-professional, like lightly scripted storytelling kind of stuff, whether that was Mumblecore or Mumblegore, right? Like it was a very late 2000s, early 2010s kind of energy. And it's interesting to see that somebody who we don't think of is at all like part of this DIY indie scene, somebody like Vincent D'Onofrio, who was like law and order money and has been in, in blockbusters and, you know, is very overtly stated in New York state. Like he was tapping into that same kind of thing too, a coast or a country away. It's it's a it is a fascinating to me it's almost like an architectural dig right when like you find a piece of architecture or artwork that's like a thousand miles away from where it should be and you're just like what is, what is the deal with this yes oh my gosh that really that puts it in such a different perspective too because um I didn't even think about that because again you know I was when I when I, I for most of that decade I was abroad so like seeing um, don't go in the woods was kind of one of the first movies I saw when I came back and. It's still so like for me, the experience of watching it reminded me of being in Europe. But like now that you're bringing up like all the contemporaries, because I never even thought about it in that context. Honestly, I, I never. Oh, that's so cool. Man, that's really cool. And now that you've pointed it out, it like it feels like there is that like because I've always thought it kind of stands by itself in a lot of ways. But now that you mentioned contemporaries, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it is actually part. There is there there is a web that connects it to other things. Oh, it's just a shame that like more people didn't like it. I, I mean, that's, you know, listen, I'm going to I'm going to out myself and 100 percent say that I saw it on release and I was one of the negative reviews. I, I 
I, I, it's it's just where it was. But like, that's why I kind of was excited to watch it and talk about this movie because I'd seen it already. But I saw it again when it came out almost a decade ago. Um, and it was still a lot fresher as, let's say, like in my horror journey, in my in my writing journey. So like I was little Donato. I was not who I am now. And I wanted to recontextualize it after having seen so many more horror musicals. Horror musical, uh, musicals are one of my favorite subgenres at this point. Um, and, and I just came into this movie with a lot, a lot more context and experience, I guess I would say. So, I you know, watching it was really fun because. I do like it more now. Like I, I absolutely do appreciate it more. And I appreciate the music. Like the soundtrack is phenomenal. Um, just like uh, up and down. Like it, it's, it's almost like a musical that isn't traditional in the way the Cezanne, like you already said that like the songs cut off, there's no clear ending. It's, you know, these songs are meant not only to be musically beautiful and like, you know, carry a soundtrack and stuff like that, but they are, they are telling the story. And so it's so much more impactful when, these two, you know, plucky like girls are singing French, you know, words as like, you know, jumping around like like they're just having fun. You know, it's this fun up tempo song. And then like the sledgehammer comes out of nowhere or, you know, one gets dragged away. So it, it feels like, you know, the music is here, but the music is just a facade. And yet that is why you're here. And it's a huge reason why um, I guess the one thing for me and listen, I, like I like it more this time. I enjoyed watching it through and you know again we we love like an, a 90 minute horror musical that is part slasher part really good music um it's just a little hard for me because all the respect in the world for casting musicians and all the respect in the world for getting that part right but some of those performances are rough you know i just i almost like to think of it in a way as found footage yeah. like it's not a found footage but like that's kind of it's got that vibe for me as well because they're they're just so natural and and I like that about it. It's like they're just you know they're just natural and so like why does everyone have to always be camera ready and especially when you've got when you're bringing well what you're bringing is not is not the acting performance it's the musical performance right like you could have got any great actor to come in and like that and then everyone would be like oh my god the acting in that was so amazing but like the singing oh. But like, this isn't a movie about the acting. This was a movie about the songs, right? So like, I feel like having the singers, that was really like, Mr. Donofrio's, that was his, that was his really, that was such a good call on his part. And I mean, all of them are, what I like as well, like, okay, so they're not that great actors, but they're also interesting to look at. Every one of them has such a unique face, really like, and with that silly hair that all the boys had back then, which actually, mine hair looks a little bit like it right now, but. Um, but I have I have like the gay side shave, so it's different. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they they all just have such interesting faces. And I find that even though some of the performances and the delivery of lines is not perfect, there's something so charming about it. Um, and again, I think it's just that earnestness that they all have where like. It's so rare in a horror movie to feel that kind of earnestness, I feel, because it's that's not what horror movies are usually about, are they? Like, we're, we're not going in there for, like, these really emotional songs being sung by, by by dudes who are, like, oh, like, punching each other when they're when they're in a group. But then as soon as they start singing, it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, their hearts are so tender. Um, yeah, it just, in so many ways, it just defies expectations. And the fact that they're not good actors, I feel like, is also an expectation that gets defied. And, and I think it just, this is a case where it just, for me, it really works. I want to give uh, Vincent an opportunity to talk about this in his own words, because he actually addressed this in, in a, a Huffington Post interview he did in 2010. 
Uh, and it goes strictly to the point that, that both of you have made about the quality of the actors. Um, the idea was to write a B, this is, this is him in the interview. The idea was to write a B movie horror structure. And I thought it would be really cool to put non-actors performances in it against these really kind of cool pop songs. And the contrast of that, the flat kind of acting against a musical aspect, like something you're not quite sure of. And then on top of it, I threw in the cerebral leading guy so that it creates a cerebral tone to the film, making it seem deeper than it is. It was all a guise to make it pure entertainment. So he's consciously playing with those. And I, you know, I'm with Donato. I'm not sure it all works all the time, but there's an intentionality in, in flat performances and good music and all of these things. He's consciously playing with genre and, uh, and modes and tones, literal and metaphorical throughout the film. This is, this is him. at his most playful um, trying to make something that kind of works in a couple of those different modes that he talks about. Oh, I just, I wish he would make more. Like, I mean, even if he doesn't do a follow-up to this, like, wouldn't it be cool if he did a whole series of horror musicals and each of them was just like, you know, whatever other, whatever other vision he would want to bring to it. Like maybe next time he would have the, have better actors and then the songs, you know, like, I don't know. So I just, I want him to make more movies, like not where he's in a cop. <laughs> like, and did you guys catch his, his cameo at the beginning that he's singing that G, that weird Jesus song in the beginning? Oh my God. I, I was going to say, like, when I rewatched it this time and I heard the voice immediately, I'm like, that that's him, right? I'm like, that's him singing the, G the Jesus song to begin. Um, I, it's just so cool, though, because, again, like, you don't think you look at Vincent D'Onofrio and you don't immediately go, oh, yeah, that's the kind of guy that would direct a horror musical. <laughs> you know, like that guy's definitely got a horror musical in him that it is also like it's like soft and tender, but it's also incredibly gory. Um, yeah, it, it's just one of those oddball things. But I, I think it's also like. Going back to what you've been saying before, Sazine, like I, I wish we just had heart, more heart musicals like this one, especially mm -hmm. because just the way it flows through and the way that the songs do tell the entire story, like it's not even just bits and pieces like uh, the groupies. I don't want to shut them out because I think they all do a wonderful job singing their songs as well. And I think actually some of my favorite, you know, choruses and the things that are playing back in my head right now. Uh, it's mostly uh, the women in the film and that's not to shut out the band. I think the band is great too. Um, but you know, you have the quote unquote groupies who are just supposed to be there as fodder or just like, you know, a distraction to the guys. And I, they're the ones I actually think more of when the musical elements come back. And I'm just like that chanting, uh, sorry, not chanting, uh, but the enchanting way that they'll be walking through the woods. Like it's dark out and she's just got the one lantern and she's like, ominously singing while walking through it's such a everything put together in that little bite of a uh, movie right there like it just is so eerie and so in, like in, encapsulating i don't know it just it does that does a lot for me like that really was when the mo movie like stood out and i was like oh man like maybe i was too harsh on this like for the for the acting element because again intentionality goes a huge way and that I, I'm going to mimic what Monogle said, and I don't think it works all the time. I think it does kind of work against the film in certain moments, but D'Onofrio did what he wanted to do. And and that's the commitment there is at least you're a filmmaker with conviction and you're trying something and you're trying something different. So I'm, I'm in on that, you know, I want to, I want to jump on that really quickly, Donato, because I think you're right. Like those are my favorite scenes in the film. And there is, I, I haven't, I've been scrambling around it all day trying to find what my, angle on it is and i haven't quite figured out it hasn't quite locked in a place for me but there is something about the way that it he moves between a musical and a concert film as a filmmaker and the concert film pieces are really fun and really good and it's people performing their music and like these are songs that we don't aspire a lot of interior or we, we don't um 
we don't apply a lot of interiority to, right? Like these are, these are, they're like, they're, they're writing songs that to a certain extent that they think sound deep a little bit. And so they're singing their songs. And like the moment that that goes away, they're just like, fuck yeah, hand me another beer. And so like, it's, there's a bit of a transitional piece. It's a bit of a performative element to that. But then each of the times that the, the girlfriends, the groupies, the friends that come out and visit them, each of the times they sing, they're singing a musical, non-diegetic version of the song that was just performed. They're singing it to the camera. They're adapting the lyrics to meet their own moods and the own moments that they're in. And all of that, like, it goes from a concert film to a classic musical. And, and a lot of some of the artifice that we see in some of the other songs slips away. And it's them being genuine and it's them being authentic and the lyrics hit harder and the music hits harder and the arrangements are a lot more juiced than they are kind of like the stripped away band. Those, those little um, pivots from concert film to musical that happen multiple times throughout the film. I was never not fascinated about it. I just think it's like one of the most cool things I've seen happen in a musical. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, my God, that song, the turn, the turn the light on song. Wow. The way that it goes from the dude singing it to her singing it, I mean, just chills thinking about it. Um, just absolutely, yeah. I I love the women in this. I, I love everyone in this except for Nick, honestly. Like, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, really. But I just find that, um, yeah. Gosh, that's such a. Oh, I love this movie. But that that's just a really cool thing that I actually didn't notice that like the girls when they sing that they're the musical and then the boys are not. That the boys are doing the concert like. Wow. Look, I've literally seen this movie a hundred times and that's not something I noticed. So thank you very much for that. I'm going to watch it again tonight and really pay attention. 99% of the time, my, my best thoughts um, about the, the movies that we talk about on the podcast come up in the middle of the podcast. Like these are not, th that was not a thought that I had written down. I was like, I'm going to work in. That was y'all talking about it. And I was like, oh, I remembered that I remembered that or that I, so yeah, like, this is what, the, if you haven't had an opportunity to do a, a classroom film kind of thing, not to preach, but this is the kind of thing I miss where like somebody says something and then you yes and and suddenly like your observations are just like going through the roof because everybody's feeding off each other's energy. So 100% don't feel bad about not catching that before. I wouldn't have got it if you'd said the smart thing and Donato had said the smart thing. Oh, dude, that's so cool. That is so cool. I mean, again, that's there's just so much there. It's nine. It's like not even 90 minutes. I think it's like 85 minutes. Yeah, Dude, how do you put that much? And then there's people out here making three and a half hour movies and they don't even give you a break in the movie theater. And I'm like, do you need all that time really? Like seriously? And then you complain that we don't want to go to see it in the, the cinema because it's three and a half hours long. Like, honestly, I, I don't know. These days I'm the brevity, the brevity really appeals to me. And I just find the art, the art of it, of how do you get so much into that short amount of time? And I feel like, like a lot of the filmmakers that are making movies that are over two hours long, really should just take a break and make a 90 minute film, <laughs> you know, like, you know, or shorter, make it 80 minutes. Just, just really hit us with a really strong 80 minute movie. And I bet so many of the movies that are coming out now would just be so much better. Like I really like, why does everything, it doesn't need to be that long. And I mean, this film is such a great example. I mean, my God, now I'm really thinking about the non-diegetic music and I'm like, dude, he, he sat there and he put that in there. And I've seen the film 150 times at least and what an incredible detail to have worked in. And then now that I'm thinking about it, the way that, oh, the contrast that it makes, like in 80, 85 minutes, like, dude, these people who are making three hour long movies, they aren't even doing anything remotely close to just that one thing that matches pointed out. Like, seriously, think about it. Oh, I do often. I Half of my 
half of my awards reviews uh this season have just been like yeah all right interesting but like did we need to pad this movie with an extra hour of fluff here like no and i'm going back to like one more thing maybe uh, about the overall structure i I do want to bring up the slasher aspect because we are talking about a horror musical and we've we are honing in on the music and we can all say we love it uh but there is a slasher element here and there is like you know a man in the wood uh woods element we we know they're being stalked we know that the band mates are going to start dying one by one and the groupies as well um and i i guess i forgot kind of how mean this movie was in a way and i'm not saying that as a positive or a negative I, i think it's just a very i this stoning death of the blind guy you know this man who's just standing there in the woods um and he can't see anything and so instead of mercifully killing this person quickly no like he just starts chucking rocks at him and it brought me right back to like speak no evil uh which came out last year and was a phenomenal little horror film but you know if you're if you're getting that comparison for me that is a a testament to the meanness um and that just adds one more contrasting element um to this whole experience that i would describe as you know amelia watched it with me and like she's just like this is my kind of weird and i think that word weird is really really what sticks here because it it is it's a mean ass slasher it's an open book uh musical it's all these things but to now throw it your your way both of you i mean how how does the slasher element play for you because i i have thoughts on the ending i have thoughts on how the killer is shown and the way they try to mesh that together um, but like, what about you? Like, did, did the slasher pull off? Oh, I mean, so slashers, like, I mean, slashers used to be my favorite genre until I kind of started getting into fey horror. So, um, so for me, like the, and musicals are also my favorite. So like this, a slasher musical is to me the perfect balance somehow. Um, and, but like what you were saying about the, the killings being so mean, I mean, my God, like when has a slasher killer ever left so many people half dead? Like, because it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just um, Robbie. Robbie is the the the, oh, the one who gets stoned. Oh my gosh, that scene makes me cry every time. Um, but um, Anton, he he's alive and he's got his instrument stuck in his throat. Like he just left him tied up to a tree with like, and he's still breathing. And like, I mean, that killer is sadistic. Like in some ways, I almost feel like we can't even call him a slasher because he leaves so many people like alive. And most slasher killers they kind of get the job done, you know? Um, That's kind of the point of them is that like they keep slashing until the person is dead. Whereas this guy's out here just literally leaving people and they're going to die slowly. I mean, how much does he hate his friends? You know? And that's, that's the thing about him as a slasher killer. Like he, he's so much worse. I feel than like your Michael Myers or um, your Jason Voorhees because he, this is personal. Like he, he is murdering these people in very personal ways and slashers don't usually do that. They're just like, Oh, there's a hammer right here. I'm going to use this to club you with. Oh, Oh, there's a sleeping bag here. I'm going to suffocate you and set you on fire. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're, the killings are, are, um, uh, what's the word for like, you know, when they're not exactly planned, it's just like that the, the slasher is just here to kill everyone that they possibly can. But this guy's out there stalking them and then leaving some of them alive to die slowly so he can steal their songs before like, Oh, I mean, there's some, there's a level of that takes this to another level than a slasher in a lot of ways for me. Um, and it's so gruesome. Like it's so gruesome. It's so sick what he does. And I'm trying to think of another movie where like another slasher, where you have a killer like this and I'm, I'm kind of coming up blank on it. I'm sure after we finish talking, I'll think of like five examples. Well, but... I mean like think about scream. 
I, I mean, that is, you know, Scream, yes. murder and friends. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, but they make sure that everyone's dead, though. Like, they're that pretty thorough. Although I, I do have to say, as as mean and nasty as this film is, uh, the melodica moment is fucking hilarious. <laughs> Him breathing through the melodica, even I, I know he's dying and it's his dying breath, but just hearing the melodica that's stuck into his throat play as he's breathing, A+. Plus. Oh. That's art. That's art. Oh, God. I, I will. I, I feel bad because as you just talked about, like, the impact of all of these murders. And the only thing I can say to answer Donato's question is, uh, we finally found something that can compete against the sleeping bag murders of Jason X. That's it. They're like, this is in the ballpark. This is this. If you were making a list, if some crazy SEO person was like, give me a list of the 10 best sleeping bag kills in cinema history. I'd be like, all right, Jason X is number one. It's not a question, but don't go in the woods. It's gotta be somewhere in the top three. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. List. I mean, just the fact it's just how personal, you know, I don't really like, well, other than scream, you know, a lot of these these slasher films are just they're defined by this this monster, you know, that's there. And I love how how D'Onofrio, he really plays on that because you see this this hulking figure running around in the woods and it's like, ooh, this is a normal slasher movie. But then when like the motives and everything come out and you find out what's happening and, and this absolute psychopath that has just been living among a bunch of really nice, talented people um, that all of a sudden it's like, oh, what? Wait. So there was a slap, but wait, but wait, but he's leaving. Wait. And then he's stoning the guy. Wait, what? Like, oh my God. It's, and I just feel like, again, how, oh, how personal the kills are. Like he could have let the blind guy live, Robbie. Robbie could have lived because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't identify anybody. He wouldn't have known anything that was going on. He could have, he really could have left him. And the fact that he killed him in such a calculated and horrifying way as that slowly um again it makes me almost think like that this is something it's like a slasher something else like and i've been trying to yeah. think of what like the what, what the adjacent word would be to kind of like really give it an accurate label because i just want more I actually want more stories like that with like slashers who are not quite slashers exactly by the definition of the Voorhees or the Myers and all that you know um yeah, which is just another thing that makes this movie really special for me um, in terms of of how it's been put together um, and the character motivations, because, you know, most slashes don't really have that, you know, like other than Scream, like you said, they don't really have much <laughs> motivation. It's just like how many people can we kill in, in uh, 90 minutes or two and a half hours? Yeah, and I, I mean, think of Tragedy Girls in a way, too. Like Tragedy Girls is literally <laughs> two, two, two slashers who are killing people they know and doing it for popularity and stuff like that. I think there's, there's a lot of connections to be made between those films because this is, I, I the menu comes to mind uh, as I, I don't, you know, like I'm watching, don't go into the woods. And all of a sudden I'm like, is this the indie horror version of the menu? In the sense that like the, the, we have a creative push to his uh, fullest, you know, potential in the bloodiest way possible. I, and, you know, I, it's a little sicker here because at least the menu is, you know, Chef Slowick is killing himself at the end of it because that's the whole point of it is we all die. None of us are worth the art that we're making. We're all we're all dead. Um, but here we have a musician who's like, nah, everyone else has to die so that I can become famous. And that is that is everything. And, you know, I, I think there's something so interesting in, in the final moments of Don't Go Into the Woods, because this whole time we're seeing a slasher. Uh, Sizine, as you've been saying, it's, it's a it's a non-traditional slasher because we have the man in black 
but it turns out that this man in black kind of looking like Abe Lincoln running through the woods at points um, is just, you know, it's our musician. It's our, it's our villain musician this whole time. Um, And we're seeing this so that obviously there is suspense and that there is a mystery around who is picking these people off. Then we find out and we have the musician confront his alter ego, let's say, and like even kill him. And there's so much in that little motion where, again, I don't know if it works fully because you have the moment of them standing over a river and, you know, he knocks his imaginary version into the water and disappears and all this stuff. So, like, I feel like there's they're trying to say so many things and I don't know if they all land, but it is such an interesting moment and curious moment because you're like, oh, God, like he's even like murdering the part of himself that I don't know, maybe was doing all this and maybe this is like a split moment where him killing the the man in black means he might be seeing the folly of his ways but instead he just takes the tape and goes gets famous and it's like oh no he's he's pure evil <laughs> but the the but the killer version of him really liked his last song so the only reason he stopped and put down the the sledgehammer was to listen to music so there you go you know music soothes the savage beast oh my god or wow. or enables i don't, I don't really again yeah. Murky on enables, the message. Yeah. yeah one of those two it's either like gets rid of it or doubles him in power i don't know well see because that was kind of my thought was that he 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 kills this this version of himself that you think is the slasher but he's really the slasher he's it's him so this thing that's been there it's been this kind of like yeah like you said like a split moment but um he's always been that person. He's always been a psychopath. And I don't even, I almost feel like the fight with, with the, the man in black is, is almost, um, well, first off, I feel like it's maybe a little bit of a nod to men in black. Um, just right. Just like me, just like a really dorky thing. Um, but also it, like he's tried to convince himself that it's this other thing inside him that's making him do all this violence, but really it's just him. And that's him realizing like, okay, this is the, these are the links I actually will go to. And you know what? I don't need this guy anymore. Now I'm just going to own it. And I'm going to take the songs with me. And what else would he do before he gets caught? You know, like, I really think about that. I really think about that a lot. Like how much more damage is this white dude going to do to other people around him? Like before he, before they finally find out what he's done, but he's still going to be famous. That's the, and then that's also like the thing as well at the end is that he, he's going to be famous regardless. So whether he's going to be famous because he's talented or famous because he's like Dahmer, it doesn't matter to him, right? He just wants to be famous. So I feel like there's a really, oh, such a sly commentary on, oh, on, on the dark side of, of creativity in this. Um, and like, how, you know, you, how many people really go that far to, to get that fame and then what's the fame for you know that's what i want to see in a sequel like that to me that's the interesting part where if it, it's never going to happen but like if it did happen in the sequel that this movie came out um seeing how this now evil musician who is gaining his fame by sacrificing his friends um navigates the the music industry and now he's he's reached to where he wants to get to but he's going to have to keep doing more to stay there and he's going to have to keep eating to survive let's say you know he he has to sustain that hunger somehow so like everything you're saying is the stuff i would actually love to see in a sequel where it's like does he get busted doing this is he so good at it that he just starts murdering agents and other like other things like that's that's because he did murder his agent remember he murders his agent in in this one already so um yeah, like who else? Who else is gonna? Who else is gonna be in the line before? Oh gosh, maybe we should just write it and like. Let's do it. Send it to send it to D'Onofrio. Be like, hey, here's a script. Go film this in twelve more days. 
like, I mean, I, why not? <laughs> like, I was hoping he would take me up on my offer to, to chat with me about the movie. Cause I'm really curious to hear about like how my interpretation of, of a lot of things kind of meshed with what his intentions were. Um, but like, I just really, I honestly, I really do sit and I think about sequels to this movie a lot. And I, do, do people still do treatments when it comes to writing a script or do you just write the script now? I think I, people probably do treatments. I would assume as much, but I mean, it, it is more, uh, you know, a wild west, I'd say in the indie scene where I, I think you can kind of just do yeah. whatever you want. Like, you know, <laughs> like I, I think just open doors now or just getting a product yeah. out and being like, you know, do do I make a movie, go to a festival and get distro or do I write a script and write a spec and bring it to somebody else to get made and find producers? I, there's no answer anymore because we've seen success stories across the board. Well, let me, uh, this is the last question we always ask our guests and I feel like we're, we're here now. So I want to ask this question right now, which is we're talking about sequels. Who knows? Probably not. Never. Right. Of course. But point being this film, um, I think we all agree varying degrees of liking it, varying degrees of deciding that it really works, but we all agree that there's something here. So the last question we, we ask our guests is and you can take first crack at this is how does this film get in front of a bigger audience, an audience it deserves. You know, what is the thing that this movie needs in order to maybe be part of the next great canon of indie horror or mumblecore or, you know, horror musicals or like movies made by Law and Order actors, right? Wherever this canon is going to be, like what is the thing it needs to do in order to get there? Hmm. I mean, I think the first thing would be to like maybe have some fresh screenings of it, you know, because it really had a very limited run in, in theater. Um, and I think, oh my God, I would have loved to have seen it on the big screen. So like, I've never even seen it on the big screen. I've only seen it on TV. So, um, so I think like maybe in one of these smaller film festivals, um, you know, like Salem or St. Actually St. Augustine, um, here in Florida, they're about to have their first horror festival in, in this October. And so maybe some of these smaller horror festivals might want to like have a feature. And you know what? Vincent D'Onofrio seems like the coolest dude. Like, I bet that if he found out that you were going to show his movie or if he, you know, you went through everything to get the permission, he might even show up to do a little Q&A with people. Um, and I've also been really curious to reach out to the band, but I haven't been able to identify, like, I haven't been able to find them. So, like, I think that would be really cool, too, as if the band might get together and, like, perform some of the songs from the movie. Maybe they would even, you could tie that in with a screening. Um I think there's a lot of like multimedia things that you could do with this movie that would help people to see it now. Because I really like, like you were talking, we were talking about in the beginning, there's something about this film that feels like a time capsule. And I think that maybe the moment for people to really appreciate it is more now than it was back then. Um, you know, in two years, it'll be the 15 year anniversary because it came out when in 2010, right? Yeah. So 2010 or oh, 2010. 2010. Yeah. So, so then the 15 year anniversary is uh, in 2025. So like, maybe something around that 15 year anniversary would be, would be something worthwhile doing. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it would be really cool if, if anyone could get in touch with the band members, because I think there's a lot that you could do with like, with them being involved with anything about the film being, I don't know, shown again at a festival or so, or, or I don't know. And I think that you could, so like, who are some of these other, because like, there's a lot of musicians who've been using horror um and i wonder if there's a way to tie in this film with them as well um hey, hey the weekend can, can you can you yeah. come in here and 
<laughs> All right, The weekend. here's my pitch. It's a cover album, but it's only songs that were part of the 2010 horror film, Don't Go in the Woods. You're going to sell millions. But for real, though, but can you imagine, like, if someone, like, some other musician picked up these songs, but then they would, like, would they finish them? Or would they end them as abruptly as they end, right? Like, see, there's just so much creative, there's, like, a lot of creative stuff that people could, like, they could do, that could come from this. Um, but I think you probably have to peg it around an anniversary or something, because that seems to be, like, the way that um, people kind of rediscover things these days is on a, it's on a, one of these big birthdays. So I don't know, maybe I'll add that to my list of things to do in the next couple of years, um, and, because I really am such an advocate for this movie. And I would just, yeah, I, I think, yeah, especially after hearing like, you know, both of you, like, you know, you, especially you, uh, Donato, watching it again and like having a new feeling about it. I think a lot of people might feel the same, you know, seeing it, seeing it now rather than when it first came out. So, yeah, I think I'm going to I am going to add this to my list. I I've already had a chat with um with Mr. Vincent on Twitter. So like he knows who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right. <laughs> Just like slide back into his DMs and see if he'll talk to me. But what do you guys think? So that is like the, you've said the correct answer, I, I think, already. It, it would benefit tremendously from a, hey, come see this little indie slasher that Vincent D'Onofrio directed and he'll be there and he'll answer some questions and maybe he'll sing about Jesus. Who knows? Um, but I, I think that's the, the entry point that people would need. It's a hard sell with the flat acting and like that that's the hard part the the barrier for entry is way higher for uh this movie because it, it's just not going to work for some people and it is going to be completely off for them even i think for horror musical fans it, it's going to be hard for them to kind of adhere to what d'onofrio is you know intentionally doing with the performances um but we are on the crux of a 15 year anniversary um we are approaching you know the idea that any movie can find a second life with the right redistribution at the right uh, partner label or something like that. So you're thinking of like a vinegar syndrome or, you know, one of their partner labels that do more contemporary films to maybe say, Hey, I, I was just actually Googling to see if it ever had like a, a decent Blu-ray uh, release and I couldn't find anything immediately. So that's the kind of thing that would need to happen. Um, I'm going to go play Warzone in a few minutes with Brad Henderson and uh, <laughs> he's acquiring movies left and right for his label. And I'm going to be like, yo man, Look into this one. See if this ever had a good release, because I think you could do a lot here with like, you know, re-releasing this oddball horror musical, just best described as quote unquote weird, but it's just the fitting descriptor. Um, but yeah, it's it's just one of those tough ones because you're either going to be in or out of it in the first few minutes and it's, it's going to earn its haters as much as it earns its, its fans, given how Rotten Tomatoes has one single positive review out of eight um, on there. So it's a hard one and I want I, it's a disclaimer it's a warning I, I want to preface that for anyone going out to try it but it it deserves to be tried that that is like any movie any movie will have its audience any movie deserves it um but even with all the things that we are saying and I am saying it absolutely deserves just a shot yes agreed co-signed I think my last my only note on that would be that you know as you were as both of you were talking I was thinking we movie fans were able to sort of repair, um, not that he went anywhere, but repair the career of Nick Cage by doing things like having, you know, the uncaged film festivals that would play at the Alamo Draft House. I think our boy Vinny D here is probably well poised for his own, you know, I'm just like 
the Sultan Sea, the Cell, Happy Accidents, the Thirteenth Floor, right? Like there are so many things in his filmography that are interesting and niche and would play as part of like whatever you want to call it, like the Danoff Festival or whatever, like whatever you, whatever kind of name you want to give it. And then I think that this is sort of like the the secret screening uh, at the end of the thing, right? Like this is the thing that people don't know about, and they go because they want to see the Cell, they go because they want to go see the Sultan Sea and watch him play Pooh Bear. But this is the movie they come away and be like, holy shit, I can't believe this is what he directed. So if we're looking for our next legendary leading man slash character actor to get the like book uh, six movies in one day around, you know, just his filmography, I think uh, he's a great actor to do that with. And I think that Don't Go in the Woods would be a great film to sort of end that whole thing with a real kicker at the end of the festival. Oh, gosh. Oh, how do we make this happen now? I'm already thinking about it. I'm, I'm going to go, like I said, I'm going to go talk to Henderson. I'm going to go uh, hit up Alamo Draft House, Los Angeles. And I don't know. Let's see what happens. Donato's already on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start uh, tweeting at Mr. Vincent every day. Get every- him to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> answer your DMs, Mr. D'Onofrio. I'm not being weird. I just love your movie. Please answer your DMs. <laughs> well, Cecilia, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You have been an amazing guest and you brought us a film that, it, like, as always, just so much crunchier than I think that Donato and I expect these conversations to go. We know we have good guests. We know have good conversations, but the, it's movies like this that always take us a little bit in a, a left direction, hard left. And we love it for that. For those that want to stay on top of the work that you're currently doing, um, take a moment, promote yourself. Where do people follow you on social media? You know, your Twitter, your LinkedIn, whatever bios you have, whatever places you want to share your author bio, where do they go to find more about your work? Um, so I'm I'm just at Cezine Kohler basically on all of the socials. I'm I'm very Googleable. I'm the only Cezine Kohler in the world, so you know it's it's very easy. <laughs> it's it's scary, scary easy to find me. Um, and so yeah, so at the moment I I'm working on my I just got my first book deal, and uh, the book is called Much Ado About Keanu Toward a Critical Reeves Theory, and it's a, a deep dive into his entire filmography and all of his creative outputs, including the motorcycle company, including his comic book, um, everything. And um, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. And that should be out. Um, that'll be out in summer of 2024. But in the meantime, I will be starting a Substack with like some of the deleted scenes from the book and other Keanu writings. Um, at some point in the next few months, I'll start that up. Um, so yeah, so if you just follow me like on my Twitter or my Facebook or whatever, like uh, you'll get updates from all the Keanu stuff on there. And um, and yeah, that's basically what I'm doing. That's the big thing that I'm doing right now. And I also have been working with Entertainment Weekly. So I post those links on my socials all the time. And um, if you like orchids, um, I actually post a lot about my orchids on my Instagram. And that's the only one that's a different name. That's Zuzu Kohler on there. Um, but even if you look up Cezine Kohler, I'm still the only one. So you'll still be able to find me. But yeah, I post, I have a lot of orchids. I rescue orchids as like my side, just like one of my side things and they live outside. And, um, and yeah, I post them a lot on my Instagram and it's orchid season right now. So if you really like to see beautiful flowers that were basically in the garbage that I rescued and brought back to life, it's my Instagram is pretty cool for that. Um, and yeah, and thank you guys so much for having me. This was so much fun. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm so happy right now. This was so, I just being able to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time and just with two smart ass dudes, just like, oh, this was just fantastic. I appreciate that. Thank you. Donato, uh, promote yourself too. You got a lot going on. 
Yeah, um, lots going on forever and for eternity. Uh, at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Hive is still chugging along, so you can find me still there too. Uh, recent things I have written about include, but do not only are are not only restricted to uh, PG thirteen horror, Gateway Horror, and Megan. Uh, I reviewed like four movies last week. I post a lot of the events I've been going to, so nice pictures of all people dressed in suits and cool things. So yeah, at Donato Bomb, just follow me and uh, maybe interact with me. Tell me I'm smart. Tell me I'm a too smart ass du- part of two smart ass dudes. I'll take that. Yes. And as for myself, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Monagle for the time being. Twitter is still a thing. I would encourage y'all, if you liked what you heard today, and if you want to go check out Sazine's original post that kind of put us on this journey about Don't Go in the Woods, uh, you can visit www.certifiedforgotten.com. We also encourage you to visit and consider supporting our patron. Uh, it's patron.com slash certifiedforgotten. We have tiers as low as one, couple dollars a month, one, three dollars a month. And the reason for that is because we do publish a little bit of exclusive content. We have video wrap-ups that we do every month with some of the best stuff that Don Otto and I have watched. We've got the uh, Film School from Hell series where Donato chooses really good, really bad, just incredibly not me movies for me to watch and write about. Um, and that's always a fun, air quotes, fun experience for me. So please consider supporting us and let's see if we can't get up, uh, you know, like Sazine was saying, into a couple more articles a month. We'd love that. But Sazine, we will definitely see you back again on the podcast. Um, looking forward to having you back on the website again soon. Donato, my friend, will you please uh, will you please uh, take us home? Random melodica death noises. <laughs> 